sometimes the meditation that we do here is called Vipassana meditation. And I think many of you know, but maybe not all of you, that this word Vipassana, it's a Pali word from the early scriptural language of Buddhism, means to see clearly. Pasana comes from this, the verb pasati and vi, sometimes is, uh, is translated as special or seeing clearly. And that we, we come to meditate and we come to investigate our experience to start to see clearly how things really are. Because the, so the story goes, we'll have to see if it's true or not. The story is, is if I see how things are really going in my experience, it leads to freedom. That's really the aim of what we're trying to do in the meditation and also these other aspects of this path that support meditation is seeing clearly and through that I can start to really see how things unfold and come in harmony with them rather than to fight against them. And in the uh, kind of in, in, you could say, early Buddhism, the Buddhist speaks about three particular ways of seeing our experience. And I want to talk about one of them tonight. I want to go over them in, in general and then speak about them uh, uh, singularly, maybe over these coming weeks. And this teaching is usually called the three characteristics of experience. It's interesting that it's, it's a it's wrong. <laughs> I shouldn't say it's wrong, but that's an understanding of this teaching that comes a little bit later. What you find in early Buddhism is, is it's three ways of seeing our experience, three particular ways that I, I take up to get a sensitivity to because it, it reveals sometimes how my mind is in contention or how it fights the way things are. And so these three ways of seeing is to see that experience, it's, it's impermanent, it's unreliable, or we could say unreliable or unsatisfactory, or another teacher talks about it, it's not perfect, is the one I'm going to be talking about. And then the last one is, it's, uh, there's not a self behind experience. Or an easier way to get a sense of that is that it's not personal. What's going on? It's not personal. So it's impermanent, it's unreliable, it's not personal, or it's not self. A teacher who I appreciate a lot, uh, Ruth King puts it well. She says the way to, she, she remembers this teaching is to remember that life is not, in, it's, life is not permanent, it's not perfect, and it's not personal. And I think there's something uh, really useful about this teaching. And, and she speaks about this. She, she, uh, this is what she says. She's a, actually another a Dharma teacher, a colleague of mine. She says, I have a simple mantra for remembering, remembering this teaching, the three characteristics. Life is not personal, it's not permanent, and it's not perfect. These natural laws are true to all existence. They are like gravity. Gravity has a nature. It's not personal. Once you understand gravity, you do not drop a glass and expect space to catch it. <laughs> Which is, I think, getting down to what these three characteristics or these three ways of seeing uh, uh, reveal is that I have these expectations or I have these assumptions about how the world is that just aren't true. And then when I believe them, then I, I really, I get hooked, I suffer. And most importantly, I want to point out that these three ways of seeing that I'll be going over these next few weeks, they're practical, not philosophical. So when I share this with you, I, I hope to share them in a way that's practical to your life that you can utilize 
rather than some kind of metaphysical stance. Rather, how can you take it up that might reveal something about experience that leads to more freedom in your life? And as I said, the, the one I want to focus in on tonight is this quality of experience being unreliable or unsatisfactory, or, or really the, the phrase I'll probably come back to most is that it's not perfect. So what do I mean by that? So I want to give some uh, different examples, and I'm sure you could probably come up with examples too. It can be so subtle how my mind uh, wants the world to be perfect or reliable. For example, I, I went to the copier place just down the road here to make photocopies of, a, of this uh, flyer that you'll see up there. And I went in, and um, it was a place that they they needed to use the photocopier to do it, and the the photocopier didn't work. And it was interesting. It was like, oh, oh, interesting. Here I have this expectation that their photocopier is going to work all the time. But the one thing I know about photocopiers, all photocopiers, I can be safe to know that at some point they're not going to work. Like, that's, that's probably a, a, a better bet than saying all photocopiers are going to work. And yet, and yet I, I have this sense that I want this perfect world, the world where all photocopiers work when I want them to work. And then there's the bite, the hook to that, where I see, see my mind. It was so subtle just to see that of like, oh, oh, this shouldn't be happening. Something's wrong here. This isn't the perfect world. And then everybody gets flustered. Then the person working there, you know, believes that too, and they think it's not perfect, and then they get all uptight. <laughs> Have you noticed this in your life? This, this notion I'm saying of, of thinking or wanting the world to be perfect in some way. It could be around a copier machine. It can be around your phone. It can be around your body, how it works, how it functions. How disappointing that gets. You know, can you just think of maybe today or the last few days, the things that you noticed were not perfect. Maybe it's your partner, maybe a colleague. Like what comes to mind? If, 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 if I could just hear just words, if people would just share words of, of where did you find the mind making a subtle expectation around something? What was that something? Plumbing. plumbing. <laughs> nice. That's a good one. I can often think that plumbing should work all the time. Be nice. Yes. Any other ones? Me. What? Me. Me. Great. The internet. The internet. Great. Delhi department. <laughs> <laughs> the Delhi department. <laughs> house cleaning. House cleaning. <laughs> we could basically say anything and know that there's a mind that has some kind of issue with it. This is what the Buddha was saying is that we could see this in, in, in really all kinds of experience. This is, this is a characteristic of experience. That's why that word is used later on. This is the way it is. And then uh, what comes from that? And the, the word I want to really focus on tonight is disappointment. I'm disappointed when the photocopier machine doesn't work. I'm disappointed when 
my phone doesn't work, or the plumbing doesn't work, or the deli doesn't get me what I want, <laughs> or whatever it is, <clears throat> or when my body doesn't work the way I want it to, or it gets sick, and I'm really attached to the idea of it being healthy. And what's this disappointment situated upon? My expectations, how I'm framing, how I'm creating a particular world in my mind. And this is where, this is, you could say, the essence of what the Buddha was really interested in examining. How this mind creates a world, and then it comes into contention with the way the world is, and that friction creates my suffering. So it's a very particular kind of suffering that is explored, you could say, on this path. How I'm imagining something, and then it doesn't fit with the way things are, and I'm attached to how I imagine things. And then they're suffering. You still with me? Can you see your mind do that? Yeah? I see a lot of nods. Phew. I'm not the only one. Yeah. It's around expectations, and then dis disappointment comes. Uh, the Tibetan teacher Chogyam Trungpa says it well. He says, Disappointment is a good sign of basic intelligence. It cannot be compared to anything else. It is so sharp, precise, obvious, and direct. Direct. If we can open to it, then we suddenly begin to see that our expectations are irrelevant compared with the reality of the situations we are facing. Do you hear how he's upholding the experience of disappointment? How it's actually important to slow down with that experience. It's revealing something. And uh, the Zen teacher, uh, Charlotte uh, Joko Beck, even, even goes further. She says, and of course she's a little bit extreme, as teachers can be. Maybe I'm this way too. She says, practice, meaning this, this spiritual path or meditation, has to be a process of endless disappointment. We have to see that everything we demand and even get eventually disappoints us. This discovery is our teacher. So that feeling I had when the photocopier wasn't, wasn't working was so important because it was like, oh, interesting, here's disappointment, here's... Here's the revealing of how I create a world and how it collides with the way things are. Oh, this is so interesting. And this is what I try to cultivate, is that kind of attitude. That's what I want to see. If I can see it again and again, then I'm not as hooked by it. And I, it, it was so interesting to have, you know, I've been reflecting on this the last few days, of like every time I was disappointed, I was like, oh, cool, here it is again. <laughs> nice. Very interesting. Like there was this whole project that I had to, after the, the three-month retreat, there was a project I had to complete with some colleagues, some teaching colleagues, and I was thinking, it's just going to take 15 minutes. I'm just going to send out an email to everybody, and four to five hours later of working on it. <laughs> oh, disappointment. Oh, interesting. Oh, I, I wanted it to be 15 minutes. Oh, and then my world collides with uh, the way things are. Oh, oh, it's like this. This is another phrase I'll use to myself. Interesting. It's just like this. I'll use those two phrases. Oh, this is interesting. It's just like this. 
And then I start to investigate what's going on. And I want to say that's the real turn in this practice that we're doing, going from being lost in the disappointment to noticing what it's revealing about how we're relating to experience. And that's the step towards my freedom rather than the step to, towards more stress and suffering. This is so essential. Like this is what I'm trying to train the heart and mind to do, to make that small turn. As, as uh, one of my teachers said, it's, it's like, like if, if you were in a, in a boat in California, on the shore of California, and it had a rudder, and you just shift that wet rudder just a little bit, we're talking maybe just maybe even inches or a foot, maybe not even that. The change in the rudder, you could be either, you know, in, in Korea or down in the South Pacific Islands, just from that small shift. That's what we're doing is trying to make this small shift of how I examine my experience. Because when I make that, then it leads to my freedom. I need to see how this happens. So it's utilizing disappointment. And I want to distinguish this from what happens often when I get hit, hooked by when I'm disappointed is I, I collapse or is there, there's a quality of, of feeling despondent or helpless. That's not what I'm talking about. It's, it's talking about bringing it into our practice. And of course, there's times where we can't control that, where we're just going to feel collapsed. But can we start to at least be aware of that feeling too? And I want to point out, this isn't about becoming a bump on a log where you don't do anything. What I've noticed is when I become curious about my experience, what it does is it opens up a particular doorway in my life. And it's the doorway into being able to respond to my experiences rather than to react to them. And what I mean by react is, is it's that habitual conditioning I have when I'm I'm lost in the anger or frustration, the obsessive anger or obsessive frustration, or that fear or anxiety that keeps you awake at night. I don't find that helpful. And I'm not responding, I'm just drowning. And this opens a door to something different where there can be a response. And I think this is, this is important to see just in terms of response, that when, when I see what the mind is doing, it has expectations, it doesn't mean I freeze and don't do anything. For example, there's still places where I notice that a particular individual is, they are just the way they are. They're never going to be the way I'm going to want them to be. And because they are just the way they are, that might mean that I need really clear boundaries with them, or it might mean that I'm not going to hang out with them anymore. It doesn't mean I, I just uh, roll over and just allow that person to do what they're going to do. It's just unclear how to, to interact with that particular person, because that's the way it is. And that's different than, than getting obsessively angry or frightful around them. It's learning how to respond. You know, when it's cold out, I put a jacket on, being able to respond rather than react.
And I think there's deeper elements to this looking for perfection or wanting experience to be reliable. It's some of the notions that, that we can bring to a spiritual path or we can bring to just this process of healing in our lives. Because I think sometimes there's a secret wish that if we practice meditation or we take care of ourselves, that we won't have any more problems anymore, or at least fewer problems. Wouldn't that be nice to have fewer problems in your life? I'd like to sign up for that. But maybe the direction of this path is a little bit different. Eugene Gendlin, who uh, he passed away a few years, years ago, but um, both, both had a background in philosophy and psychology. Somebody asked him his definition of mental health. What is, what is good mental health? He said, good mental health, uh, uh, what good mental health is, is new problems. <laughs> that, that's what it is to grow, to have new problems. Not the same old problem not being confronted with the same old problem, but just being confronted for, uh, with one problem after another. That might be the direction, really, of what freedom is about. You know, when I look at the Buddha's life, that's the thing that, that strikes me is he was free, but there was all kinds of problems that happened to him. You know, his cousin tried to kill him. There was a genocide on his, his clan. You know, he had uh, a, a really bad back. He had all kinds of troubles with his monastics. The whole reason why there's a whole list of so many rules is that each rule was designed because some monastic did something. So he said, okay, I think I'll make a rule about this. And then some monastic did another thing. Okay, we need to make a rule about this. <laughs> so I think, what is there, like 227? So there's 227 times he had to have that conversation. <laughs> Oh, but he had new problems. Uh, uh, Carl Jung uh, takes this a step farther about uh, this notion of really the direction we're going in, in terms of freedom or in terms of deepening our lives. He says, the serious problems of life are never fully solved. If it should once appear that they are solved, this is the sign that something has been lost. The meaning and design of a problem seem not to lie not in its solution, seem, seem not to lie in its solution, but rather in our working at it incessantly. This alone preserves us from stagnation. And then he goes on in a, in a different but similar context. And he says, but it is just the impossibility of this task that he's pointing out that makes it so significant. A task that is possible, i.e. that is, has a solution, never appeals to, you could say, he uses the word, our superiority or or it never appeals to the best of us or the deep, deepest parts of us. To hear just the difference on, on how to hold problems from this perspective, 
to really see that they're onward leading in this sense, that it's not about getting to a place where there's no more problems. And there's something that opens up that can be really boundless if, if I, I have the sense of incessantly willing to examine and open and explore them. Like this, this quality, this quality of disappointment that can come to us so often. So I thought disappointment would be good during this time of year. Sometimes we can bring all kinds of things to the holidays. Actually, disappointment's a good talk on any day, isn't it? <laughs> That's the nice thing is I feel like I'm guaranteed that it'll be pertinent. <laughs> you can always rely on that more than sometimes other qualities in our experience. So what do I get out of this exploration? What starts to open up? I think uh, one piece of this is um, it, it is first seen how uh, my mind can get so hooked into these expectations that I bring to, uh, to experience. So often it's, it's amazing where my mind places its notions of happiness. You know, what's a happy life? What's a content life for you? And what are the things that we're sold, that we're told bring us contentment? Is it another Netflix movie? Is it being on Twitter and Facebook? Is it Spotify? Is it, what is it? Is it just a good meal? Really, where, where, is, where is contentment? Even in the, the wholesome things that we do, maybe I'll share this. That even if life were perfect, would it really be satisfying? And Bertrand Russell speaks to this. He, he really had this crisis in his life around this. He, and I want to share with you this passage. And he's talking about what happened in his life, his life. And he says, I had what might truly be called an object in life, or you could say a purpose in life to be a reformer of the world. This did well, did very well for several years, during which the general improvement going on in the world and the idea of myself as engaged with others and struggling to promote it seemed enough to fill up an interest, interesting and animated existence. So this seems really kind of wholesome, doesn't it? He's, he's working for the betterment of the world. But the time came when I awakened from this as from a dream in this frame of mind, it occurred to me to put the question directly to myself. The question was, suppose that all your objects in life were realized, that all the changes in the institutions and opinions that you were looking forward to could be completely affected at this very instant. Would this be a great joy and happiness to you? And an irrepressible self-consciousness directly answered, no. Striking, don't you think? Like when he imagined a perfect world where all the institutions worked the way we wanted to, all the political systems functioned the way we wanted them to, our relationships worked the way we wanted them to. Still, 
he realized, wow, that isn't, that isn't the essence of happiness and joy. He had a, a, actually quite a striking uh, kind of a meltdown in his life to see this of like, oh, I, I would just, this is, I was just following a value. But contentment might be something different, maybe something not so external. It might be more about the quality of our hearts and our minds. And the thing that turned his, his mind was this experience around, I think it was a friend who was dying and feeling this welling up of kindness and love towards this person. He's like, oh, oh, this is, this is what's so significant. This is where there can be contentment. Rather than getting caught up in this, these, these mere expectations and having them broken. And I want to point out, yes, you might have values like Bertrand Russell. There's nothing wrong with that, but how do you hold them? How do you live your life around whatever it is? So as I was saying, what, what does this lead to? I think it leads to what Bertrand Russell was talking about, more of a, what I would call an intimacy with experience, with others, with each moment. To really touch this moment in a way that's meaningful. Like a, quite a few talks ago, I was coming back to just the simple poem of Basho that I think really, really expresses the simplicity of the intimacy that we can have with the present, present moment. And he says in this haiku, he says, it's not like anything they compare it to, the summer moon. Just the simplicity of seeing something like the moon at night, the intimacy that comes there. And this practice reveals that intimacy. You know, as Jane Hirschfield says at the beginning of this beautiful poem, she says, only when I am quiet for a long time and do not speak, do the objects of my life draw near. There's something powerful about coming into this space together to be quiet for a long time and not to speak so the objects of our life come near, whether it be the breath or a sound or another person to really have this taste of intimacy. And then just to end, really I think this sums it up Suzuki Roshi, a, a great Zen master, said, nothing we see or hear is perfect. This is really what I've been talking about. Experience is not perfect. But right there in the imperfection is perfect reality. Can you touch that if it's even for a moment? Okay, so let's take a, a moment just to stretch and move our bodies and then we'll sit together and it'll be this exploration of one. You might be sitting here and there might be expectations. Can you notice any subtle disappointment to become curious about that? 
or it might be other moments where it's like it's not like anything they compare it to, whether it be the summer moon or the breath or a sound. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.